Plato was a extremely famous, is an extremely famous um, Greek philosopher that lived before the times of Jesus himself. And one of his more um, prevalent and well-known pieces of literature was he one time wrote um, a long dialogue that was a fictional dialogue between real people of Socrates having a conversation with someone named Euthypro. And it's oftentimes this is referred to as on piety, um, but different translations into English might talk about piety or goodness or morality. But essentially, if we were to boil down what, what Plato was getting at in this um, sort of fictional dialogue, was he was asking about the question of morality. And what came from this dialogue was what philosophers call theism's uh, Euthypro's Dilemma. And he presented this difficult dilemma for theists, people who believe in God, to wrestle with. And it was on this question of what is morality? When we, when we tell people you ought to live this way, where does that come from? And, 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 and he knows that people who believe in God are probably going to answer one of two ways. And he talks about how both of these ways are problematic. It's called Euthypro's Dilemma. And one of the ways that we as Christians and as theists more broadly talk about morality is on one hand, you could say morality is that which is just inherently good. It just, it just exists. And we have a major problem with that. Because what that does is that now distinguishes morality from God himself, or in Plato's uh, context, it distinguishes morality from the gods themselves. And so now God is really no longer God because there's this morality that's out there that even he is subjected to. Even God is saying, listen, I don't, I don't make the rules, man. I just, I just follow them. And so the question would then become, well, where does this morality come from that even God himself is subjected to? And wherever it comes from, that's sort of my ultimate standard. That's the highest of highs. Even God is underneath whatever that is or wherever it comes from. And so we don't want to say that. So that, that was Euthybro's first dilemma is morality just sort of exists by itself somewhere and God himself is learning it, discovering it, and subjected to it. And we don't want to say that. So then we say, well, morality is just whatever God says. Whatever, whatever God says and does is moral. But now we have another problem because we have now made morality subjective. What does that mean? It means that morality is not like a fixed standard. Morality is just simply whatever side of the bed God wakes up on in the morning. Right? So one day he's faithful and pure and just and we call that good because it's God. And then the next day God is unfaithful and unjust and impure. But we, what do we call that? Well, that's good, because it's God. So we either have this deified morality that lessens our God, or we have a view of morality which is subjective and it just sort of goes and comes with whatever the whims of God are on each given day. Last week, you can open your Bibles up to Titus chapter 1. We read through Paul's introduction to Titus and there was this little thing that Paul says about God that's very bizarre, I think, to many Christian ears. And so I decided I'm going to do something I have not done at this church yet. We are going to preach an entire sermon kind of on one verse, but even lesser than that, really on just a couple words. 
Because this requires some great unpacking and understanding to understand this little bitty concept, or what seems to be a little bitty concept here in the verse. If you recall last week, we talked about Paul's apostolic purpose, and what I meant by that was we talked about what was the whole mission and purpose of the apostles. What were they trying to do in the world? What were they trying to get from people? And in one of those points, our last point was they were trying to instill hope, the hope of eternal life in people. That's what Paul wants us to have, is hope for eternal life. And he grounds that hope, if you look in verse 2, in order, if you remember, in order for us to truly find a secure hope, he reminds us of two things, that this hope that eternal life was something God promised in ages began, so it's part of this grand eternal purpose. But then he also reminds us something about God. He says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, and then the ESV does something interesting here, it says, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So Paul wants to ground the the assurance and the confidence of our hope in the fact that this, God promised it to you, and good news, God, well as the ESV says, never lies. Some of your translations might say something different there. They might say something a little bit more startling, like God who cannot lie. Uh, Both are accurate renditions of of what is going on in the Greek. The Greek word there is a simple word for without falsity. So, So Paul was just communicating that God is without error. He's without deceit. He's without lies. So how do we put that? Do we put that as the God who never lies? Or do we go so far to say the God who cannot lie? Most of us, if we were sort of letting our theology determine how to Uh, how to translate the Bible, which we should never do, we would definitely, most people I think would prefer the God who never lies. Because isn't it just kind of awkward and strange to talk about God being unable to do something? Like don't, don't we believe in a God who can do all things? So we don't want to put into Titus chapter one this concept of the God who is quite literally incapable. He, he can't do it. Well, here's the problem. No matter how you translate this, That position is crystal clear in Scripture. You keep your marker here, but turn to Hebrews chapter 6 for a moment. The author of Hebrews makes it much more clear than than Paul does here. We'll begin in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 6, although verse 18 is really the key that I want us to see. But just for a little bit of context, read with me in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
Abraham, or forgive me, Paul, or the author of Hebrews is using Abraham and God's promise to Abraham to communicate the same thing that Paul communicates back in Titus chapter 1. Which is God, when he gives his people these eternal promises, he wants them to have a sure foundation, a sure hope for those things. And one of the the, the means that both Paul and the author of Hebrews goes about communicating the sureness of this hope is that they spring as promises from a God who cannot take back his promises. They spring forth from a God by which it is impossible for him to lie. He can't do it. And so believe it or not, as as we look at this little phrase found in Titus chapter 1 or found in Hebrews chapter 6, we actually find a concept here that is so important for us as Christians to understand. And all of the consequences from this are so important for Christians to understand. And, And primarily, one of the most important things that this helps us to understand is the entire concept of morality and law itself. So we go back to Euthypro's dilemma. What's the answer to that question? Well, the Christian answer is that we call this, in, in, in the world of logic, we call this a logical fallacy, and it's the logical fallacy specifically of a false dilemma. That's a logical fallacy, a false dilemma. A false dilemma is when you present only two possible options to, an, to a question when there are actually more than two options, right? It'd, it'd be like me meeting someone the first time and saying, well, are you American or Canadian? What is it? Which one is it? You, you got to pick. What might I say? Well, I might be from a whole different country other than America or Canada. Those aren't the only two options. So when we look at uh, what Plato was getting at, which is ultimately, why is the good good? Why is morality moral? Is whatever God says moral? Or is morality, does it exist outside of God? And we would say, neither. They're both wrong. There's a third option you've forgotten, and that option sounds in its most basic form like this. Morality is the reflection of God's character and nature. Moral living is the precepts or the laws which show us, reveal to us who God is. So what God does is good because he is good. In other words, God's being and character has definition and it has boundaries to it, right? We know that, you know that I'm not God. So God is different from me. So God is definitional. We can define him. He has a character. He has a nature to him. And that nature, who he is, is our standard of goodness. So why is lying wrong? Is it wrong because God says it's wrong? Well, yeah, that's true. That's actually not a bad answer to that. That is true. But if we want to get more to the heart of Plato's dilemma, morale, or forgive me, lying is wrong because God is not a liar. That's not who God is. He can't do it because that goes against his nature. Asking God to lie is like asking a lion to fly. We see all these birds in the air flying and we tell the lions, why don't you start flying? They can't. That's not who they are. And God has this amazing character in nature where there are some things outside of his nature he's not capable of doing, and we have called those things sin. Who God is becomes the standard. What God does becomes the standard, a reflection of who he is, and that's what we call morality. And so we need to understand this because we are living 
in a culture that is growing and increasingly growing in what we call secularism. And secularism takes many shapes and forms. Primarily, a secularist is an atheist or an agnostic, someone who denies the existence of God altogether. But believe it or not, you can be a theist and still be a secularist. If you have such a view of God where you believe, like, I think God exists, but he should never show up in my public life. He should never show up in my arguments. I, I, need, I need to be able to convince people of things without appealing to God. Then you're ultimately operating like a secularist. You're saying, I can give you an answer to any particular situation, and I don't need to call upon God to do it. And so you're essentially functioning like a secularist. Any worldview which seeks to, to cut God out of the answers and foundations is secularism. It's a godless ideology. And that's the only ideology allowed in our schools right now. It's the only ideology that's allowed in government entities right now. And it's growing in people who actually profess this every single year in this country. People who profess not having a religious identification is, is growing. It's the fastest growing religion in America the non-religious. And so here's how we have to understand this because there are obviously so many problems and dangers to that kind of a worldview. But here is just simply one of them. Here is secularism's problem. What is morality without God? If we take the God who cannot lie and we remove him from the picture, what are we left with? Now why is lying wrong? You see, what we talk about in Titus, this concept of a God who cannot lie, what, we're ultimately, what, what Paul would ultimately go to, the consequence of this, is we're talking about grounding or justifying morality. Because here's the thing, every person believes in morality. I'm not saying that people who don't believe in God are necessarily significantly more evil than people who do believe in God. Typically, people who don't believe in God still have a general set of moral codes and they try their hardest to live by them, just like you and me. So the problem is not, can secularists be moral? The issue is not, can secularists have morality? The issue is, can they account for where that morality comes from? And without the God who cannot lie... You can't do it. It's, it's morality floating in the air with no grounding, no, nothing, nothing supporting it. And so what it becomes is it becomes entirely arbitrary. Arbitrary morality is essentially the same thing as what we call subjective morality. Subjective morality is the consequence you are forced to go to once you no longer believe in the God who cannot lie. You are now forced to say, well, what is morality? It's simply just, just practices and behaviors that any agreed upon society has, has come to agree with one another. We shouldn't do these things. There's a, a number of problems for this. Number one, nobody actually lives that way. They say that because their worldview requires them to do it. But when little children are kidnapped and sold, everyone knows in their heart of hearts, this is more than just a cultural taboo. That's more than just, well, listen, our particular culture has determined for our own pragmatic benefits that this isn't an appropriate way to live. Well, their particular culture didn't make that determination. They think kidnapping and enslaving children, there's nothing wrong with it, so who are we to say otherwise? Aren't, isn't their culture allowed to just define morality as arbitrarily as ours? That's what you're left with, is just... It sort of helps our life if we all agree on these principles. But then even then, what's the definition of helping? 
without God. Well, we're back to relativism. The whole thing falls apart. And so without God, essentially morality is, is erased and all of life becomes what we call might makes right. Whatever is moral are the people in charge. The people who hit the hardest. So why is stealing wrong without God? Because I'll go to jail. <laughs> That's why it's wrong. Because police officers have bigger guns than me and more manpower than me and they can force me to go to jail even if I don't want to. So it's just survival of the fittest. But here's what we have to understand. That's not morality. That's just a fight. Right? If, if two dogs find, some, find a bone in a junkyard alley and they start fighting over it, that's not morality. That's just that dog bit harder than the other, so he got the bone. So if I say I'm not going to steal because I don't want to go to prison, that's a junkyard dog fight. That's not morality. And what we have to understand with the God who cannot lie is sometimes we as Christians tend to think of morality in those same terms. We agree that morality is ultimately a junkyard dogfight. We just happen to have the biggest dog. You better be moral or else you'll go to hell. Again, that's not morality either. That's just saying my God is stronger than your will. My God can punish you to a greater degree than even your government can. Now, even though, and there's a sense in that that's true, right? Hell is a place where we are punished for our evil, our wickedness. But here's the difference, though. When we talk about hell being a punishment for sin, we're not grounding morality in that. We're giving motivation for morality in that. Motivation is not the same thing as accounting, right? If we're just trying to help someone out, hey, you should do this because this bad thing will happen. That might be true, but that's not, that's not giving a, an account of something, so I want us to understand the God who never lies. I want us to understand the implications this has for us as Christians and as human beings living in God's world and how it relates specifically to the issue of morality and how this issue is so important for our culture and our world. We are not simply saying our God punches hardest so you better obey him. That is what morality is deduced to in Darwin's worldview. Right? Whoever hits the hardest makes the rules. That's not what we're saying about God. The, the, Paul does not ground his, the hope of our eternal salvation in the God who punches hard. He grounds our hope of eternal salvation in the God who cannot lie. Paul is grounding human behavior, or Paul would ground human behavior in the character and nature of God. And so I want us to sort of picture it in our heads. We have two options. In the beginning, God, or in the beginning, carbon and hydrogen. Those are our two options. If in the beginning was carbon and hydrogen, and it exploded, and then eventually we showed up here at Redeemer Christian Fellowship, where do you get thou shalt not lie from? Carbon and hydrogen didn't give that to you. Right. Carbon and hydrogen is impersonal. It, it didn't give that to you. Nitrogen can't give you, thou shall not lie. So all that becomes is just over time, 
people, whatever they are, and whenever they started to, as sort of the, uh, as, as, as the bacteria started crawling its way out of our primordial goo, and it, and it tr eventually transformed into what we now call people, when those pond scum bones and water, when they finally started thinking accidentally and they started interacting with one another, they started making up arbitrary rules like, well, I don't like when you touch me like that, so you shouldn't touch me like that. And if you do, I'm going to hit you really hard. Like, that's what you're left with. Again, you're not left with you ought to do this. You're just left with it's going to hurt you if you don't. Again, that, that, that's not morality. So you don't get morality from hydrogen and carbon. But what Paul is saying is this, is before hydrogen and carbon, there was God. Creation didn't exist. People didn't exist. There was God. And so because God is eternal, because he is outside of the time-space-matter continuum, he now becomes the fixed standard for all else because he's the only thing that even exists. So in the same way Hebrews chapter 6 talked about how God had no one higher to swear by, so he swore by himself. In eternity, before creation, all there was was God, so he's now the standard of all things. And not only that, but God is the one who created everything else. It's not like it just came into being and interfered in his atmosphere. God is eternal, and then he creates. So what that tells us is that everything in all creation ultimately finds its identity, its origin, and its standards in the eternal God. So when we're talking about morality, we're ultimately talking about God, who is our eternal understanding. We have to have his perspective to understand everything else. It is his character and nature that is eternal. It is his character and nature that created and governs all of this. And so what we're saying is we're not just simply saying, again, God hits the hardest. We're saying that he was there in eternity before all he cre creation was. And so when he created, according to his own will and his own purposes, his very character, nature, and being becomes our standard of living. So we are talking about God who cannot lie, and he's, that's eternal, right? God can't lie, that's eternal. So once he creates, we now say you shouldn't lie. Why? Because God hits hardest? No. Because God's not a liar. And because his character and his nature are the standard for all living. So you see how we've now completely abolished Euthypro's dilemma. On the one hand, we're not presenting morality as if it's above God or outside of God, like there's some floating Ten Commandments out in the cosmos somewhere that God found one day during exploration. So morality is not outside of God. It's not something that God himself is subservient to. But we've also avoided the other extreme of presenting this fickle God who just, like I said, wakes up on different sides of the bed in the morning. And morality changes according to him's, his whims. No, the Bible doesn't just say God never lies. It says he cannot lie. God wakes up on the same side of the bed every morning, so to speak. He has a fixed character in nature. He is unchanging and immovable. And it is that unchanging character in nature that then reflects in our creation. And we call that morality and logic. And Notice this, and, and let, me just, let me just put it this way. When we think of morals, what are they? Like, let's talk about their very chemical makeup, to speak metaphorically. They're not material, right? You, you, don't, you don't go to Walmart and buy morality when it's on sale. You can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it. Morality is immaterial. 
Morality is also universal, right? We don't say, listen, uh, kidnapping and, and enslaving children is wrong in Nebraska, but if you're in Colorado, go ahead. Mor- morality is immaterial, it's invisible, yet it covers all of creation. We, we expect people to live a certain way no matter where they go. So it's universal, and then it's also unchanging, right? Again, we, we don't say, listen, you can, you can physically abuse your parents to get your way right now. That's totally fine. I don't know, maybe tomorrow it'll be, it'll be wrong, but it's, today, today it's okay. It's immaterial, it's immutable, it's unchanging, and it's universal. What does that sound an awful lot like? An immaterial God, an omnipresent, a universal God, an unchanging and immutable God, the God who cannot lie. You see, it's a reflection of his character. Now let's go back to carbon and hydrogen. In the beginning was only the material. And then that material changed over time. So we're expected to believe in immaterial morality, which came from only the material world. And we're expected to believe that morality does not change, and that comes from the constantly changing world. You begin with a worldview that says all is material, but here's your immaterial values. You begin with a worldview that says everything's been changing, evolution is constantly taking place, but your morality will never change. Morality doesn't fit in the puzzle piece that is godless ideologies. It, that piece doesn't belong there. It's, it's tack, it's super glued in, and it doesn't match, and it's the wrong color. You see, we as Christians, when we go around telling people that there is a certain way to live, we're not doing what the atheists do, which is saying, listen, things are going to go really bad for you if you don't do this. We're saying that there is actually a grounding, a justification, an eternal purpose for why this behavior, no matter its consequences, is true and correct. It's amazing how many people will disregard the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, because of all the immoral immoral stuff they see, right? I mean, God does some, let's just be honest with ourselves, he does some violent things in the Bible. God commanded the Amalekites to be slaughtered. We're talking women and children, slaughtered. So people approach the Bible and say, I'm not going to believe in that book. I'm not going to believe in that God. Look, he's evil. What's the problem? What is evil? We live in a culture that loves to approach their life as if morality is subjective and you have no right to judge me. But God is the only one not afforded that privilege. Right? If, if, I, live my way in a certain, if I live my life in a certain way and you tell me it's wrong, any given non-Christian person in America is going to say something like, well, who are you to judge? You're not, you don't get to tell me what's right and wrong. You're not the author of morality. You, who are you to judge? Morality is subjective, and I, I create my own morality, and you don't have the right to judge me. But then those very same people will go to Scripture, and they'll look at something God does, and they'll say, that's, a, that's wicked, that's immoral. You know, what, you know what God ought to say? Who are you to judge me? 
I get to create my own morality. You get to create your own morality. I get to, why don't you just live and let live? Oh, wait, that's a moral principle. Shoot, I can't say that. Even the very concept of don't judge me is a universal moral principle that you're now forcing onto people. If I live my life a certain way and you say that's sinful, that's wrong, and I say don't judge me, you know what I'm saying? It's immoral to judge. And guess what I've just done? The very thing to you that I'm criticizing you for. I don't want you to tell me about this objective morality and expect me to live by it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you about this objective morality and I'm going to expect you to live by it. You're not allowed to marry that person. You're not allowed to love that person. Well, you shouldn't judge me. All that is now is we're just throwing moral claims at each other. But the problem is only one worldview can give an account of where moral claims come from. In other words, our our world right now is a snowball fight where we're all just picking up our own objective moral principles and throwing them at each other. But only one side can tell you where snow comes from. The other side is actually going into your yard and taking your snow and then going back into their worldview yard and throwing your snow back at you. Because their worldview doesn't have snow to have the snowball fight. Outside of the God of the Bible, you don't have a grounding for objective principles. And so the second you live your life as if they exist, you're now pretending to be a Christian. Because unless you have the God who cannot lie, you cannot have thou shalt not lie. So I want us to understand that when we read this in Scripture, whether you're in Titus or Hebrews, you read the God who cannot lie. Folks, this is a good thing. Are we more comfortable with the God who can? And so we understand this also influences the way we think of God's power. Right? We tend to think of God being all-powerful, and what we think that means is God can do anything my mind can conceive. That's not what all-powerful means. Limitations can make you more powerful. One good example of that is just yesterday, Layla is still, my wife is still just counting down the days for the NFL to finally be over. (laughs) And I was watching uh, some NFL football yesterday. And let me ask you, which team is more powerful? I'm going to give you two hypothetical teams. Which team is most powerful? The team who can lose or the team who can't lose? Which team would you rather play for? The team who can lose or the team who can't lose? You know, it's interesting. We, the way we define all-powerful is we would think the team who can lose is more powerful because they have that ability and the other team doesn't. But what's going to happen every time those two teams play? We're going to see who's truly more powerful. God's inability to lie makes him more powerful. God cannot do his creatures wrong. It's not just that he won't do it. He won't do it because he can't do it. That's not who he is. It's outside of his capacity, and that makes him more glorious and more powerful. And this is why Plato, you can see in his dilemma, is so disturbed because his concept of deity 
back in his day was a Roman and Greek pantheon, which was a multiplicity of gods sort of struggling through eternity the way mankind is also struggling through eternity. These were fickle gods who changed their minds, who went back on their promises, who were vindictive and malicious, and he was expected to call it good because they are the gods after all. But that's not the God that we worship. We don't worship the Roman pantheon of gods who can lie to you. And the gods who, if, 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 if you are, are, are disrespectful, they can crush you. You see, again, the Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon, this is just atheism with a little bit more flair. We worship an unchanging, immutable God who has a fixed character, nature, and being and he becomes then the unchanging standard for all of life. You want to know why adultery is wrong? It's not because it ruins families, although it does that. It's not because it hurts children, although it does that. Because even that would beg the question, well, then why is hurting children wrong? You see, it's an endless cycle we can never answer. You want to know why adultery is wrong? Because the eternal creator of the universe is perfectly faithful. You don't know why stealing is wrong? It's not because it hurts businesses, although it does that. It's not because you might go to prison for it, although you might. Stealing is wrong because God is not a thief. Morality is a reflection of the unchanging, universal, invisible God. Without him, you're left with, I hit harder, so give me what I want. And again, that's not morality. That's just a fight. And so I just want to summarize. I know we kind of, this, was ba- this whole sermon was basically just one long rabbit trail. But I want to summarize with why Paul put it in Titus and remind us of that principle we learned last week. The God who cannot lie has major implications for how we understand the universe, how we understand how we are called to treat people, morality, But that wasn't technically the point that Paul was making. The point that Paul was making back in Titus chapter 1 verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God's character and nature is fixed in such a way that he cannot be unfaithful to you. He cannot commit evil against you. He cannot and will not take back his promises. And Paul sees that for what it is. That's a glorious truth. That should not lower our view of God. That should exalt our view of God. That he is always faithful. He is always good because his very character and nature sets the standard for what is faithful and good. So Paul says, take hope in your eternal life. God has promised it to all those who come to Christ. And once you come to Christ, God cannot and he will not reverse that promise. And that's why it becomes true hope. That's why uh, the Bible defines hope as the assurance of what is not seen. How can you be assured? Because God is. Because of who God is, his very character, nature, and being grounds our assurance. He cannot lie, and so his promises will always be true. And as the book of Romans says, let every man be a liar. 
but God be true.